We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 151 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor the Iron Fist. With me this evening, back from his exploits in Malaysia, Scott the Velvet Glove. How are you going? Really well, thanks, Trevor. I am happy to be here, happy to be alive. It's been a few weeks. I was beginning to worry that you've been abducted or something (laughs) and locked up in a Malaysian jail somewhere for your activities. No, no, no. I wasn't locked up in a Malaysian jail or anything like that. But uh, if I may, just while we're talking about the past, Mm. uh, I listened to the uh, episode where you guys had Hugh Harris on. Mm. And Hugh, if you're listening, you are wrong. The Israeli entry was not a deserving (laughs) winning of the Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, Britain was robbed, Australia was robbed, even Russia was robbed. No, Israel did not deserve to win. Uh, That's my end of my rant now. I hope hope this is the 12th man here. I hope Hugh um, really takes that on board and knows that Scott is a passionate advocate of the Eurovision Song Contest. Mm. Well, Hugh, if you're going to get something wrong, then taste in the Eurovision Contest (laughs) is one area. Anyway, so yes, and we've got Paul, the 12th man, who's back. So um, very good. Well, dear listener, if you're listening for the first time, this is an Australian podcast which looks at news, politics, culture, ethics and transformations taking place in our society. We might well be cataloguing the demise of civilization, but we try to have fun while we do so. Uh, and we're particularly obsessed with religion and we'll take every opportunity to bash it along the way if we can. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, then sit back and relax as we review the last seven days. And I didn't have it on the list, gentlemen, but we better start talking about uh, Trump and G7, G8 and meetings with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, any, anything that you want to add to what might have already been said in the mass media? Um, with the G7, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. Mm-hmm. I think it should still be the G8 and Russia should still be involved in that because there's, you achieve nothing by freezing them out. Mm-hmm. You've got to have them around the table and all that sort of thing. So why were they... Um, oh, they were, frozen, they were frozen out because of... Wasn't it Crimea? Well, Related to probably Crimea, Crimea yeah, Eastern yeah. Ukraine, the intervention. Yeah, yeah, it probably was Crimea that got them kicked out of it. I mean, if intervention in foreign countries is going to kick you out of the G eight, well, surely, surely the Yanks should, 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 should be kicked out. Should be G six at this stage. Yeah, surely. I'm with you on that one. Why not let them in? Yeah. Well, I think that you 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 achieve more by having people sit around a table, mm. and I think that the G eight would be a better grouping because you'd have Vladimir Putin sitting there and you could steer him down and you could possibly get something achieved with him. He might have brought uh, Trump into line a bit more. So, you never know. So good point, Scott. Mm. I like that. Yep. And, you know, with the Trump-Kim summit, um, I can understand where the Yanks are coming from. I really do because, you know, it has been an elusive target of the Yanks to get the North Korean dictatorship under control. So I can understand why Trump has gone in 
guns blazing. However, I do believe that the Japanese and the Republic of Korea have something to be very pissed off about, you know, because the Koreans were getting ready for war games and all that sort of stuff. Trump said, oh, we're cancelling those war games. He didn't even consult with the Pentagon or anything like that. Um, he just said, we're cancelling them, which I found ridiculous. And, you know, the, the other thing is that, um, and he said they were provocative, I think was the word. Um, you know, they're not provocative, they're defensive. And the Republic of Korea has a very long memory. They remember that it was the North that invaded the South, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can fully appreciate why the ROK forces are on high alert and that sort of thing all the time. So you're saying that the, the South Koreans and China would not have wanted Trump to be meeting with North Korea? Oh, I think the Chinese probably wanted them to meet with North Korea for sure. But can't, the, it can't hurt to talk. No, it can't hurt to talk. That's right. But we've already had some concessions being given away without any, without anything that's noticeable from the North being handed over. You know? And that's how it can hurt to talk because Trump is the sort of person who lives for his own grandizement, you know, and he could well give away things that he has no business giving away. Well, give away what? A few the the movements, security like, like of South Korea, Korea and Japan. Exactly. And that, that is the whole point. But, that, you know, if, if give, he... away, give away what? Agreeing not to do a treat practice. That doesn't do anything. Yes, it does. It does because what, what, it inhibits their ability to no. successfully attack North Korea down the track. Is well, that what you're saying? to successfully Come fight a, a modern war, you need to be um, pretty well practiced in in what you do. And apparently, those war games are very useful for any sort of army that, even for fighting a defensive war, for them just to have their skills honed to the nth degree, and they're missing out on that little bit of extra practice. Killing practice. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is that there is no way North Korea is going to give up nuclear weapons. Totally agree. No, I agree. It's just pie in the sky and agreements that says Mm. that they're going to aim for that. And that anybody could possibly believe for a nanosecond that that North Korea might agree to that is just foolish. Absolutely. So they're just stringing Trump along and... Mm. He gets a nice trip to Singapore and eat some good food that he probably can't get in North Korea and have, have a good time on the world stage and be seen as a world leader. And he gets so, cameras pointed at him, yeah. which he loves, so, and he gets to open his mouth and spew out all kinds of hot air, which he loves doing. Yep. And and, it, and for the rest of the world... And the rest of us have to listen to the inane comments of Donald Trump yet yeah, again. So yeah. it, it just grates every time you hear the man speak. It's he, he, awful. He, he, <laughs> it's he awful. shoots from the hip all the time, you know, without consultation with allies, partners, whatever. He's yeah. just shooting from the he hip just, all the time. He just speaks whatever shit has just come into exactly. his head. And he's, whatever he, comes to, into his head. He thinks we're all moment. so stupid that we believe what he's going to say. And this is the sign of an extreme fool, is someone who is stupid and thinks he's smart. Yes. And Donald Trump is that. Yeah. So people ascribe way too much strategy to Donald Trump and he just blurts it out as the impulses are fired off in his brain and um, there's no filter. There's no strategy. Listen to the uh, people who've, Mm. like, um, ghostwritten 
his book. You know, that guy mm. during the campaign, there was a guy who ghost, ghost wrote his book. Yep. And this guy said Donald Trump has, you know, the attention span of a two-year-old, mm. basically. Mm. He doesn't read, period. Mm. He doesn't read. No. Uh, how is he supposed to have his, his mind around the complex uh, material he needs to grasp in order to... To deal in such complex negotiations, he's, he's he's way out of his depth. In in future years, when they're looking back on the fall of the American Empire, one of the key moments will be yeah. the election of Donald Trump. Yeah. But one of the really key moments will be this period right now, where despite all of the crap he's done, he still has significant support. So that just shows you what state America has reached. But. We'll be talking more about the state of America and the demise of civilization in that sphere of the world, well, that part of the world, a little bit later, but closer to home. We've got a lot of religion slash with a legal bent sort of stuff coming up. So first up, New South Wales Abortion Clinic Safe Access Bill passed through the state parliament. So now it is illegal to um, be within 150 metres of an abortion clinic and do anything that might intimidate somebody attending the clinic. So I've got a link here to an article from ABC News and the vote was very compelling, 61 to 18 in favour of the bill. And um, the incredible part about it, though, of the 18 who said no, one of them was the current Minister for Women, Tanya Davies, and another was the former Minister for Women, Prue Goward. Mm. Miss um, Davies, who has previously described herself as pro-life, defended the sidewalk councillors, as she described them, mm. uh, saying that they were basically offering support and information and not intimidation. Yeah, and it's, it's clear from the materials online that you can watch that it's it's all about intimidation. And Prue Goward was about uh, freedom of speech, 12th man. Yeah. So sort of two different reasons there. Um, I don't see how somebody can stay on as Minister for Women, though, after that Absolutely. Decision. And this yeah. is something another coalition MP said, this bill is about respect, dignity and privacy of women. Yeah. For the Minister for Women not to su- to not support this, you have to seriously question if her position is tenable. Mm. And I would I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. Mm. Yeah. Paul, what do you think about the freedom of speech Look, argument? I, I think Prugaud is uh, wrong on this, on this, in this case. I don't think anyone's freedom of speech is being limited by having them you know, excluded from a 150 metre zone around an abortion clinic, they're still free to go down to into public streets, public squares, you know, where people gather and and talk about it all they like. There's no limit on their freedom of speech. And mm-hmm. there was a very good article that we I think we discussed several weeks ago where somebody made it abundantly clear that women who present at abortion clinics for a termination. They've heard all the arguments. They've heard them all. They've had plenty of opportunity to examine all the pros and all the cons and they've made a decision and they go there for a medical treatment. They do not go there for a conversation. Now, if these people want to, 
you know, well, you're assuming promote. they've heard the arguments. They've yeah. heard the arguments. You assume they have. I mean, you they're, don't going know. To, they're going to have heard the arguments, though, Trevor, because you've got a situation that, you know, people generally don't use terminations as a form of family planning. No. They do it because they've been caught short or what have you. Mm. And, you know, for a lot of we, a lot of women that go in for terminations, they go in because they've got a bloody good medical reason to get a termination done, mm. you know. And, or, you know, or a good personal reason. But. Absolutely. But, you know, it's not up to me or it's not up to any of us around this table to sit there and say, well, no, you can't go and have a termination unless you yeah. meet X, Y, Z. Can I give you one more thought that crossed my mind on the way here was it's in- incredibly um, patronising of pro-life advocates because they come out with these statements like, oh, yeah, but the woman going for a termination maybe hasn't considered every angle or maybe hasn't heard what we want to tell them. Mm. You know, this is so patronising and so arrogant and so just so ignorant of them. Mm. You know, they, they, they make out, it's like, it's like, you know, the way they, they look at people who don't share their superstition, you know, their belief in a, a sky fairy. You know, they, they look upon people who don't share their delusions as people who just haven't heard the right message, you know, mm. and they treat women going for terminations in the same patronising way. They treat them as children who haven't had who haven't had free access to all the wonderful information they wish to share with them, and the wonderful life that you know that they see for them with this child. Mm. Yes, I agree, hundred percent. Just on the actual, it's always good to look at the actual legislation and it's so easy to do, dear listener, you can just Google these things and find it. But the text of the legislation says a person who is in a safe access zone must not make a communication that relates to abortions by any means in a manner uh, that is able to be seen or heard by a person accessing, leaving, attempting to access or leave or inside a reproductive health clinic at which abortions are being provided and that is reasonably likely to cause distress or anxiety to any such person. So you're not allowed to make a communication relating to abortion in that area that's reasonably likely to cause distress or anxiety. So they actually spell out praying, but it seems to be assumed that praying would fall into that. Also says... One would assume so also says um, a person must not intentionally capture visual data of another person uh, without that person's consent in a safe access zone. So if you recall, our friend Caitlin was part of a group and they were filming the uh, protesters, if you like, so nobody could film according to that legislation. So Caitlin, make sure your group is no longer, well, presumably those people are no longer there because it'll be illegal for them to be there. But if you do see them there, don't film them because <laughs> you'll be doing something illegal as well, it mm. seems. So so yeah, and a safe access zone is defined as 150 metres. So, so yeah, that's interesting. That's done and dusted. And I remember speaking well, to Caitlin that time and thinking, what were your chances of getting up? And at the time, it all seemed like it was going to be years off, didn't it? Mm. And it literally months later and it's all happened. Exactly. It's amazing. And, quick. you know, it was very good that Berra Jinglian was one of the, um, was one of those who voted for it, mm. you know. And, um, yeah, congratulations, Caitlin. You're, you've got what you wanted. Yeah. Mm. If you could now start work on um, 
school chaplains and religious <laughs> instructions in schools and, and a bunch of other um, um, churches paying tax and a few other things. If we can get you on that, that'd be great. At the same time, a Sydney Catholic bishop has called for the church to have safe zones because he's saying that people attending church have been confronted by protesters. So he's saying, well, we need a safe zone as well for our people attending church. And 12th man, you're sort of shrugging yeah, uh, in agreement. Look, I can sort of understand if people go to church, they're going there to do what people do at church. Uh, should they have to contend with a bunch of protesters trying to block their their entrance to the church? Yeah, uh, however, the... the um, he was referring to citing loud protests outside St Mary's Cathedral during the day of the unborn child mass last year. Mm. I mean, like that was during a particular mass that was dealing with the unborn child, which was clearly anti-abortion. So this is, you know, I would imagine that, you know, given the passage of the safe of the safe access zones or whatever whatever it's called, um. I would imagine that the protests at churches will just now evaporate. Yes, I think you could mount an argument that if it was an ongoing situation of protests outside of churches preventing people from comfortably entering to worship, then, yeah, you can have an access zone, but you need more than one incident in order exactly. to qualify for that. Yeah, that would have been... And, the, the, and, the, and I just think the, the, arch, the, the Sydney... Catholic bishop or whatever, yeah, he's just a bishop. I think he's just being foolish, that's all. Yes. I'm going to quote here, I think, Anglican priest Father Rod Bower, um, whose church at Gosford on the Central Coast had been targeted, and he said, I'm not sure I would want to equate a person worshipping with a woman entering a medical facility for the purpose of termination. They are different degrees of things, he said. That's true. But they both involve vulnerable people. What we observed on Sunday night during the incident with the extremists is when people are in the context of prayer and worship, they are in a particularly vulnerable state. Your defences are down when you're trying to open up yourself to your God. Oh, Jesus Christ. It, traumatize, <laughs> it traumatises you in a deeper way oh. than it may do when you're just walking down the street. That's my personal experience of that. This is the guy from Gosford, is it? Yes. He's the guy that's got his normally got those signs up, you know, they're all lovey-dovey signs and all that sort of stuff, isn't it? They're social justice warrior messages, really, yeah. aren't they? He's yeah. a he's a social justice warrior with a white collar. Right. So there you go. Um, in the context of prayer, you're particularly vulnerable. Your defences are down. <laughs> Mm. Piffle, I say. Piffle. Piffle. <laughs> a load of nonsense, isn't it? Anyway, if it becomes a big issue, then by all means. Well, look, I mean, if if it comes up again next year and that sort of thing, that you've got a rowdy protest outside the church, then fine. But I don't believe you should have a set of laws over one incident. Mm. It's probably unnecessary, as you say, Scott. It's all a bit familiar. It sort of all sounds a bit like the nuisance laws. Are you guys aware of nuisance laws? No. So there's a tort of nuisance. So this is from our common it's law. It's a pretty vague concept, isn't it, nuisance? Well, uh, 
it'll be vague when I describe it because I haven't looked it up for a long time. But um, but, <laughs> but essentially, I, you know, you know how some people say uh, free speech must have its limits. What about hmm. people shouting fire in the cinema? That is an example of public nuisance. It's not free speech at all. Yes, it really isn't. Yeah, so because it's con- it has to be contextualised. Free speech is about the capacity to express your opinions uh, publicly. Yes, it doesn't mean you can do it everywhere and at any time of your choosing. Yeah, so somebody you know carrying on in the Queen Street Mall in an obscene way, mm. for example, um, could be charged with a public nuisance. Um, that would require them to be uh, causing nuisance to the public at large. And there's also private nuisance, which relates to your enjoyment of your land or property being affected by somebody else. So I think an example of that might be noise from a party or or something like that. Leaf blowers. Yes. So, uh, (laughs) So that's private nuisance. So these are common law laws that really are saying, hey, what you're doing is interfering with what I want to do or what I can reasonably expect to do. My so, enjoyment of my personal space. Yeah, or my just use of a, per, of a public space oh. for, in terms of public nuisance. Yeah. So it's kind of just a more specific... The abortion clinic exclusion zone is kind of a specific public nuisance sort of law in a way. That's the way I look at it. Mm. There you go. Mm. Mm. Still on legal matters, the Ellis defence has been scrapped in Victoria. So once once again, the Andrews government coming through and passing legislation. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. does away with the bloody Ellis defence and is a bloody good thing too because it was absolutely ridiculous that the Catholic Church hid behind that Mm. for God knows how long. Mm. So a, a quick explanation. The Ellis defence gets its name from a 2007 New South Wales case where the Catholic Church's Sydney Archdiocese was considered to be a property trust whose trustees had no control um, over managing priests. So uh, Ellis, in attempting to sue the archdiocese, was um, told he was suing the wrong group and that, in fact, he should be suing the priest and that um, the church itself was an unincorporated association. It wasn't a legal entity. So the only person he could sue was the priest who had either passed away or, or had no money at that stage as well. So uh, I think the legislation, the way it works, is that uh, in this situation the courts would say to the unincorporated organisation, you need to nominate a legal entity that's got some money that's associated with you and if you don't, we're going to look at your financial records and your groups and we're going to pick one. So... It's quite often in business, Scott, that you would have holding companies that hold mm. the assets of a business and you have operating companies that hold, that conduct the business and Absolutely. it's done purposefully so that if the operating business gets into strife... Mm, then you can just cut ties with it. And, then yeah. uh, it gets sued for whatever, you know, things it might have done, done, yet all of the assets are in the holding company, which uh, carries on in its merry way. So... Mm. That's one of the big problems in law is making sure you get the correct defendant and trying to get a defendant that's got money. So It sounds like it's, it's a rigged game, doesn't it? It is when you can create entities. This is the thing. With, it's a bit with... like this uh, recent hoo-ha with um, 
people claiming uh, Uber Eats and these other food delivery, um, online food delivery setups, mm. uh, they they create this legal fiction that all their employees are subcontractors. Yes, rather than employees. It's a legal fiction yeah. constructed to avoid responsibility, isn't it? It is, and there are laws that say, well, is this person under your permanent direction? Um and are you giving them, you know, when you look at the relationship, does it look and smell like an employer-employee relationship? In which case, we're going to deem that it is. And most and people would it, say it is. Yes. So because those people have bugger all capacity to influence the terms of their relationship with yeah. the, uh, the parent company. Yeah. The same as priests mm. have bugger all power to influence the, the nature of their relationship with the church. Do they? I mean, they're employees for all intents and purposes. Aren't they? Uh, a lot it was saying was that the church was an unincorporated association in terms of the Ellis case. So it was saying, sure, the church would be directing the... Um, priest, but but not the land-owning um, trust of the church. It was just the unincorporated parish that would be directing yeah, the, the priest. We and, all know it's a legal fiction. Yeah. Don't we? So anyway, well, that's what they've done in Victoria. Is yeah, they've got around the legal fiction. They've said the courts are instructed that they can look at the group and say, well, here's an appropriate entity to sue. It's about bloody time too, isn't it? Mm. It really is. Yeah. Pretty good for this sort of case. Could get messy with others down the track. Be interesting to see. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Well, you know, Paul was saying before that he'd like to see churches sued off the face of the earth. So. <laughs> yes, yes. Did I say that? Well, yeah. not exactly. But I just think I said I'd like to see them all uh, litigated against by the victims of uh, sexual abuse. Yeah. And litigated into the ground so that they are forced to, you know, well, part with assets. They've got way too many assets. They'll never be litigated into the ground. They've got all their power and the, leverage the, the, in they've society. Got, they've got so many assets that if all of these claimants are successful on big sums, the, the church has still got plenty. As we'll discuss later, the Mormon church alone, the Mormons have got $32 billion, So, yeah. um, and they're just a tin pot, you know, Little group out of Utah. Imagine mm. what the Catholic Church is going. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, just still on these sorts of legal issues. Just to wrap up, uh, there is a national redress scheme which basically makes it easier for people to sue these groups if they've suffered from some sort of uh, institutional sex abuse. And under the redress scheme, a claimant just merely has to show a reasonable likelihood that they suffered um, sexual abuse, in which case they can get up to 150000 but they'll waive all their other rights if they do so, and the Catholic Church has signed up to that. Obviously, people don't have to. They can go for more, and but, you know, then you've got to prove more than just a reasonable likelihood. So there we go. What's your feeling on that? monetary payment of up to $150,000. Do you think that the church is getting off lightly? No, the church should agree to it because if it just clears the cases quickly, you know, it's just money and they've got plenty of it. Yeah, so, I know that, but this is what I'm saying is that, you know, 
And people I, don't have I, to agree I, to that. They no, don't have to. They, so. they can still sue, but then they've, you, you, like you said, they've got to, they've got to have a uh, higher burden of proof, blah, 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 blah. Mm. It gets tougher for them. So I was just wondering if $150,000 is enough just to, whether or not it was just set up saying, well, this will shut them up. Yeah, I don't know how that figure came up. You know, I think it's, I think it's good option for people. It was originally 200, as mm. we know, and then mm. it was reduced to 150. I think we can safely assume at the request of the churches, the amount was reduced. Yeah. Yeah, I tell you what, the church's legal team—they must be earning good money at the moment. Absolutely, all, all they of these be, legal yeah. issues that we're talking about Are with you the church to go back into and, practice. <laughs> well, and there's another one here because the ACT is now talking about um, a bill that would remove the seal of the confessional, and so Catholic groups are up in arms about that again. But so yeah, so the ACT is looking at at passing legislation forcing priests to. Uh, well, telling them that they'll be guilty of an offence if they don't um, tell the authorities if they hear of abuse cases through the confessional box. So, which I find ridiculous. Like you know, you got um, it's in here somewhere. I read it earlier today that they said that um, they don't believe it's going to protect children. Yes. How can they say that if you've got a situation that if it's said to you under the uh, in, this is the, the confession. This is the Canberra Goldburn Archbishop Christopher Prowse. He said exactly that. That um, let me just find it here. Breaking the sacred seal of confession won't prevent abuse. It won't prevent abuse, but it will make it a damn sight easier for the cops to track the bastard down who did it. Which might then prevent future abuse, abuse. that exactly. person's going to do. So exactly. it's quite possible that it will prevent abuse. Yeah, that's a good point. It probably yeah. will prevent abuse. Yeah, yeah. good point. Mm. And, and, you know, I found it utterly galling that you had priests that were confessed to and that sort of stuff, so they had to keep their mouth shut. It really... You know, it's it's a bloody archaic, ancient bloody tradition that they should do away with. And, it, you know, it, 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 you're, you're a former Catholic. Mm. You know that for probably 90% of people who enter the confession box, it's mm. just going through the motions. Yeah. It's not significant in their lives, you know. They just say what they think they need to say to get through it, don't they? Oh, you make stuff up. You make stuff up. <laughs> That's exactly. what I did as a kid. Well, that's yeah. exactly right, you know. So, who who is it going to protect? Probably only the priests that do the abusing. That's yeah. all it. That's all it protects. Yeah. After all this, they still haven't learned. So yeah. Righto. That's enough legal stuff with uh, Catholics in particular. <laughs> now, um, World Cup. World Cup. We're going to talk about the World Cup. No, well, sorry. I... <laughs> is it the football World Cup that's being played in Russia? Yes. Right. Uh, no, I wasn't hold planning on that. Hold that next week. Okay, okay hold that over, yeah. Because <laughs> there'll be a, a match this weekend, a few matches, in fact. Right. Well, Australia it's all, plays France on Saturday. It's also shoddy. Uh, whatever the Australian government provided to our bid for the World Cup was a complete waste of money. $50 and sh- million dollars and down the drain, just into the pockets and bank accounts of very shady people associated with and international football. That should be a strong signal to any future government mm. to, when they come knocking, tell them to go to buggery, mm. you know, that we're not interested. They're like Las Vegas boxing promoters. You yeah. can't trust them as far as you can throw exactly. them. Exactly. So yeah. you just wouldn't deal with them. Yeah. You, you would just say, guys... 
when you've cleaned up your act, then we might think about it if we think there's a fair game, but there's no way that we're going to be part of this process. Anyway, there you go. There's a soccer World Cup for you. Hmm. Um, Australian Medical Association, the AMA, has endorsed the Uluru Statement on Indigenous Constitutional Change. The powerful doctors' lobby declared it would get on the front foot during any referendum campaign raising the prospect of yes materials appearing in GP surgeries across the nation. I, what the hell is, is the, the AMA, AMA doing having any business in Aboriginal constitutional change issues? You know, even if you support the whole notion of giving Aborigines a House of Parliament, which I personally don't, um, I don't think that that would get up because it's, you have to get the majority yes in a majority of states and it's not going to get up. So I, I don't think – I think it's I don't know, pointless. At the, rate, at the rate the Aboriginal population is, is increasing <laughs> according to the last census, you, you never know. It's still it's still minuscule, isn't it? It's I'm just joking. It, it is, but, you know. Two or three percent. It's, it's increasing at an exponential rate, though. So, but anyway, you're quite right. And It'll it never, is not, not through normal sexual reproduction, of One course. wouldn't have thought, no. It's but, increasing because more and more people are realising they are Indigenous. Yeah. But, I mean, you are the Australian Medical Association. Mm. How can you purport to speak on behalf of your members on an issue that's so divorced from your key role? So I, uh, before this podcast, made a quick call to Deep Throat mm-hmm. and uh, he confirmed that somewhere between 25 to 30% of doctors are members of the AMA. Mm-hmm. Most of them are not. That's so, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is interesting. So It shows a, a lack of confidence in the professional body by the people in the field. And if they're going to keep doing coming out with statements like this, yeah. then they yeah, will probably I, lose some more, I would have thought. I can't understand why Shorten's in favour of it because, you know, oh. Yeah, you know, I can He's understand. a weather vane politician. Yeah, but, you know, it's... He's a classic weather vane politician. He... He points whichever way the wind's blowing, that guy. That's yeah, but the does. wind's not going to blow in this direction for very long. Well, Once you start exposing people to what you are asking them to get behind, mm. then I think the no case will get up very quickly and it will be over. So the whole thing is a waste of time, effort and money. Mm. And ironically, I mean, for Indigenous people to, to say that this – this is a, a way of overcoming the um, historical racism that they've endured, and there's there's no argument that they have endured absolutely very very uh, grave injustices. And um, you know, up here in Queensland, this is one thing I'll always say, and I've said it before. I'll say it again right now. I do think we have to have a reckoning over those stolen wages. We have to pay sure. them. We have to pay that sure. money, and that is something that we have yeah. to do. But real material. Equality is what Aborigines need, what Indigenous Australians need. And they say they don't want symbolic measures anymore. They're tired of symbolic measures and they want real material benefits. But the real material benefit they're asking for is for preferential treatment, which Mm. is in effect racism, isn't it? That's what we've been saying for the last 150 episodes. And to fight racism with reverse racism 
doesn't strike me as a great solution. No. No, it doesn't. Dead right. Why doesn't anybody else say this? I've, I've never heard anybody say this in Australia at all. I think it's partly related to this rom- romanticism that's swirling around anything Indigenous these days. But people will say, oh, the Aboriginals don't deserve it. Like the sort of Pauline Hanson type view will say, well, they're bludgers and they don't deserve it or whatever. But nobody will actually run the anti, it's, it's a racist policy um, argument. Well, I think we, we all agree uh, Indigenous Australians deserve exactly everything that every other Australian deserves. Yep, and we wouldn't take a single dollar from what they're getting at the moment, but you just can't, you know, if you're going to offer that to Aboriginals you, in a remote community, you have to offer it to the whitefellas in the remote community as well. You can't, you or, or you base it on, uh, you, you base it on objective factors, like everybody in this community gets it because it's remote, yes. or everybody below a certain income level gets yeah. it because yeah. that's the key, but and look, it, even not the colour of your skin. As we all know in Australia, ev- virtually every government document you come across has a little box, do you identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? Now, that mm. is a racist element in that document. Mm. Anyway, we're going over old ground there that we've been over recently. <laughs> next, next item on the agenda... Similar sort of area. <laughs> uh, this is an article from The Conversation. And dear listener, The Conversation is one of those sources that we use a lot because it's academics writing mm. academic papers with a bit of a journalistic, easy-to-read flair and giving you the quick nuts and bolts of some sort of academic idea. And this particular one is from Victoria Greaves, ARC Indigenous Research Fellow, University of Sydney. And she's talking about Aboriginal healers and saying that they should be working alongside doctors. And I'll just quote some of it here. Because this is, a, it's a, uh, this is not just some crazy <clears throat> sideline sort of publication that nobody's ever heard of or does nothing. It's a serious... Uh, it's a serious publication, and yeah, I have yeah. said before on this podcast, I've said I've encouraged people to donate to them and that sort of thing because they do do generally very good work. Yeah. You might want to rethink that after Absolutely. This. After, after, after this one, I am considering my $20 a month. You right, know? right. <laughs> because... Yeah. So here we go. The well-being of Indigenous people is based around having the freedom and resources to practice cultural ways of being. While some of these can seem removed from those in the West, such as the lack of materialism, primacy of kin and close relationship to the natural world, including them in mainstream culture can contribute to everyone's well-being. Well, for a start, the well-being of Indigenous people is based around having the freedom and resources to practice cultural ways of being. You are now assuming that all Aborigines are the same. You've just completely broad-brushed them and said, oh, well, you know, they're all, they all think the same way. Exactly. And, and all white people think the same way. Exactly. Right? You know, they're saying that you don't, they're not interested in material well-being or anything like that. Yeah. You know. One way Aboriginal culture differs from the West is in its healing practices. These involve mindfulness and attention to relationships with all living things, as well as seeking the advice and treatment of traditional healers. Yet Aboriginal traditional medicine has been neglected in Australia. This is out of step with international instruments, such as Article 24 of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which states, 
Indigenous peoples have the right to their traditional medicines and to maintain their health practices, including the conservation of their vital medicinal plants, animals and minerals. To close the gap, we must address the construction that the cultural ways of Aboriginal people are shallow, meaningless or even toxic. Such colonising tropes are a barrier to creating the kind of freedom necessary for Indigenous Australians to live healthy lives. I'll pause at that moment for comments from the 12th man who's... I'd like to challenge the notion that Aborigines are closer to nature than the rest of us. Right. I mean, their whole conception of the, the reality of nature is highly contestable because it's based on basically superstition and, you know, archaic, disproven notions of the nature of being. So to say that they're closer to nature just means they're closer to another delusion. Well, well, they completely wiped out all of the large mammals in Australia soon after they arrived here, and their burning practices completely changed the vegetation. Mm. Eucalyptus was a very minor um, part of our our flora, and once they started their their firing practices, it seems that they completely changed the... So yes, so but then you know Abri- indigenous people saying that they are inherently more natural or closer to nature is a bit a bit like a Catholic priest saying he's closer to God than the rest of us. I just don't buy it. Here we go. The closing remarks on this article are: but the Nungangari aren't recognised in the Australian health system. While other health professionals can expect to be paid, they cannot. There is no category of Nungang. Ngangkari services in government payments for health care as well as in the private health sector. And Australia's drug regulator has not listed their medications as either safe or beneficial. Well, what they seek is the right to practice in the same way as other paramedical services in the Australian system. While various societies around the world recognise the value of healers who are culturally rather than scientifically based, Australia is lagging behind. You know, well done, Australia. I say, <laughs> indeed, absolutely. Thank God. You know, it is because you know she said that. What she says, she said they're not scientifically based. Well, there's your que- there's your answer to your question. Exactly. That's why they're not getting paid because there's no basis for them in science. She has completely dismissed the scientific method in her article. Absolutely. She she states in there somewhere, oh, look, it's not something that could be measured in the normal ways, you know. So by all means, if these people have come up with some sort of, you know, ointment from an aloe vera plant or whatever, great. Let's test it in the usual scientific method. And if it works... Just like aspirin, right? Yep. It was originally... Extracted from a plant, I think it was willow or something like that. Okay, yeah, right. So it was originally a herbal uh, medicine, which became a medicine when it was scientifically validated. But this person, this research fellow at the University of Sydney, is just saying abandon the scientific method. It's a cultural practice. Give it complete legitimacy. God, for goodness' sake, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah. You know, I, as a subscriber to this conversation, I think I will write to them and say, look, you really should rethink this, you know, yeah, because be that... Do that. It'd be interesting to see what... What response I get, What yeah. response you get, yeah, yeah. Yep. 
Um, the other day we were talking about religion in China and I said that, uh, well, I was using it as an example of a civilization that managed to, you know, function quite well without a heavy religious element and you thought that, well, they had a fair amount of religion and we both agreed that Confucianism was not religious not really at all. religion, no, it's, but, a, it's an organising system. Taoism, you thought, had a fairly significant... I would still uh, maintain um, that, yeah. Okay. Uh, got a, it's got some feedback from a listener, so I'll just read that. This was from Greg. Hi, guys. Just a note on episode, one, episode 149. In my youth, when leaving religion, I read a bit on Taoism and can't remember any God belief. If the definition of religion is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God or gods, um, he says from Google, in Taoism, the universal springs from the Tao and the Tao impersonally guides things on their way. But the Tao itself is not God, nor is it a God, nor is it worshipped by Taoists, which would suggest that Taoism is a philosophy rather than a religion. Um, goes on. It says, keep on the good work. And that we should have been on Q&A to balance out the bullshit peddlers. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. <laughs> um, look, there's an look, awful it, lot of supernaturalism mixed in with the philosophy. Right. And if you know anything about so, Chinese culture, and I've, mm, I've, I've studied Chinese culture at mm, university, and yeah. they're extremely superstitious yes. people. Even, you know, if you've been to be China, more, yeah, you know but, they let off firecrackers all the time. Yes. It's it's to scare away the evil spirits. They're yes. extremely superstitious as a, as a nation. Yes, and Taoism and even Buddhism. Um, people can make the same argument and and a valid one about Buddhism not being worship of supernatural entities, and that's yes. true. But in practice, they inevitably become corrupted by you know superstition and supernaturalism, and Taoism has been certainly. So, so it's pronounced with a D, is it? Like as uh, some people to a T. say Taoism, others say Taoism, right? And I, it, I don't know whether it's to do with the 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 sound of the Chinese language and how they say it, but I think they tend to say Tao rather than Tao with a right. with a hard T. Okay, it seems that Taoism is not particularly prescriptive of do's and don'ts, no, I and don't think so. it seems that Buddhism isn't either particularly prescriptive. If there is a prescriptive one, it would be Confucianism that tends to yeah. specify things. So my point, which came out of my talk with one of the groomsmen at my son's wedding, was where he was saying, well, at least religion kept everybody in check because it provided a framework for everybody. And I think my argument still stands by saying that at least in China they managed to get by without a religious framework telling them what to do so much. Yeah, so while you might argue they had some religion, it wasn't a prescriptive style telling them what to do and that they managed to work it out for themselves as to how to conduct their affairs. Yeah, so suppose, don't I'm forget just, about ancestor worship, which is yeah. extremely central to ritual life in yes. China yep. traditionally. Yep. So, so there we go. That was the topic of... Uh, so they definitely do have these notions of, um, you know, the spirits of the ancestors being a some sort of reality in, in their daily lives. Yeah. yeah. Still in the Chinese, they are... 
they're doing a reverse play on on religion in Australia. So there's an article here titled Chinese Agents Are Undermining Australia's Sovereignty, according to a new book by Clive Hamilton. So his book is called Silent Invasion, How China is Turning Australia into a Puppet State. Basically, we've talked in the past about dominionism, how the Christian groups um, are trying to infiltrate politics, academia, media, um, uh, a few other headings that I can't quite remember off the top of my head. And it seems that the Chinese are doing the same thing here and included in the areas that they're infiltrating are religious groups. So they're sending their Chinese spies into Christian congregations in Australia with high Chinese sort of um, participation rate to spy on the Chinese in the... But it is a surveillance state. Mm-hmm. Let's face it. There's probably no country in the world that is more into surveilling their own citizens than the Chinese. Yeah. So that's what the book is arguing. That's, that's what he's saying is happening. Yeah. 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 Do you think he's a little bit um, over the top in his assertion that we're being silently invaded? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't read all of his facts and figures. I mean, No, I haven't read the book either, but um, so. just, just from the ABC... Story. That sort of thing. I just thought to myself, this guy's smoking wacky tobacco. Yeah, well, well, it could be. Yeah, it could be perfectly. It could be spot on. Well, I mean, just the whole thing, Beijing Bob here, which he says he's got a, chop to, a chapter titled Beijing Bob, which is dedicated to former Labor Foreign Minister and New South Wales Premier Bob Carr. Mm. Um, excuse me. Um, the Australia Chinese Research Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. ACRI was created with a $1.8 million donation from billionaire property developer Huang Jingmo, which, mm. you don't know... F- don't forget Beijing Bob is married to a Chinese woman. Well, there you have it, yeah. Exactly. So he has, a, he has a, an emotional con- connection with uh, Chinese culture, I assume. Mm. But I just... Uh, it, I think it, she's Chinese. I may so be it, wrong. It, it just doesn't... This but, just doesn't uh, your gut instinct is not agreeing with this, Scott. Is what no, you're saying? I, I don't. I don't think I agree with his with his thesis that we are being silently invaded. You know, would you know though? Like, well, you if, if you were, if they're being effective, you wouldn't you even wouldn't, know. Wouldn't would you? Yeah, that's right. So it's quite possible. Well, it's possible, but it's unlikely. I would have thought. You know, I, I think thought, it's highly. I, I think it's highly likely. I, 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 yeah, but you, you, what else are they going to? Why not? Why would why, they why bother? Because they have a lot to gain, <laughs> yes. a lot to gain. We I are a country that rich in resources yeah. and, and land and space and lots of things that the Chinese if, if, covet. Yes. Yeah, but China has got its own internal problems. They've got Uyghurs and that sort of stuff that they have to deal with first. Oh, that's a minor but, nuisance. But, but, yeah. but so many of the elite in China are also, you know, buying stuff here. Absolutely. And it's I in think their interest to including make sure land. Of, yeah. And that is why I think that we should actually um, so, we should actually have a tit for tat retaliation so, thing when it comes to property. We should actually say if we can't own property in China, Chinese people can't own property in Australia. And not just for China. I think Australia needs some sort of coherent policy on foreigners owning uh, Australian property. Look, I, th- I, th- I think it's quite plausible that the Chinese would be spending a lot of time surveilling what's going on in Australia. And if there was, we'd be high up the list of countries that they'd be interested in. Absolutely. So, um, 
Yeah, yeah. okay. Well, yeah. I, I, just, I just, it just didn't We're also well. an ally of the United States, mm. and that's another reason to try and leverage us away from the United States by mm. buying influence, mm. by buying into Australian property, by, you know, infiltrating every kind of social institution that they can, mm. including, you know, nut, nutcase ch- Chinese churches. Yeah, yeah. Uh, crossing the globe now to Denmark... They have just passed a law uh, banning the burger. And the niqab. Mm. Mm. The vote was 75 to 30. It's another strong vote with 74 absentees. And um, they've now joined Austria, France and Belgium who have similar laws. Most Australians would be shocked if you told them in the street that Austria, France, Belgium and Denmark have got laws banning the burger. They, They wouldn't believe it, would they? Well, I don't think most Australians would believe that, you know, because you, you think of these countries as being very civilised and all that sort of but thing. What does the ban entail is I'm not altogether well, clear. It bans the niqab, which is just the yeah. slits that in you see. In all public your... places or Absolutely. just in certain yeah. public places? No, the whole lot. Mm. Yeah. Um, like France has even gone to the point of having the hijab being banned when you go to school, you know, because it's a it's an overtly religious yeah. symbol. Yeah. Mm. And the Jewish skull cap, which I forget what it's called. Mm. You know, you can't wear one of them and you can't also wear large Christian crosses either. I'm with the French on that in terms of children in schools, yeah. I heard an interesting theory on the veil, the burqa and the niqab. Mm. This one came from Jordan Peterson, who I don't like very much. So have you listened to much of him at all? I couldn't even tell you who he is. Okay. So he's... um, He's an academic out of America Canada. or Canada. And he sort of shot to prominence when he was complaining about the what he said was the enforcement of pronoun laws in universities in Canada. And he is a strange character and he's become very popular in the sort of atheist secular movement, gets a good run on you know, Dave Rubin and Sam Harris and, you know, all that sort of YouTube-type guys over there. And anyway... Sam Harris actually had a bit of trouble trying to yes. have a coherent conversation with him. He did, yeah. So he's very popular and he appeals to... Oh, white... Uh, oh, anyway, he he's... Dear listener, he's not one to follow with any great passion, believe me. Anyway, he did come out with a theory which I thought was interesting, which was that older women in Islamic societies like the idea of the veil because it disempowers beautiful young women so that they, as older women who have you know, lost their attractiveness, can hang on to their power. So in a society where women can dress as they please, young women with lovely curves who dress to sh- impress can um, gain advantages that a frumpy old woman can't, basically. So his theory was that that older women are actually promoting the use of this garment because of a power protection as a power protection mechanism for them. What do you think of that? I think it's a bit dumb. I think it's a bit stupid too, yeah. What, 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 
What do you mean? You think the theory's stupid? Or no, I just don't think those older women have as much influence as he's attributing to them. I think it's the the men that uh, that 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 run this um, number on the the way women dress. Okay, well, there you go. It was just a theory. I, th- you know, of the hairbrain theories that Jordan Peterson has come out with, it was one that I just thought was an interesting one. Yeah, so you can yeah, see the logic. In it. You can see the logic in it, but I don't think I agree with it. No, no I don't think I agree either. Okay, there we go. Yeah. I'm putting it in the plausible category. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Peterson no, I think, is a I bit think... inconsistent. You know, he says some quite sensible things sometimes, and then, and then he goes off on weird tangents. To... He does. No, I think Paul's hit the nail right on the head. I think it's the whole thing about dressing women up and that sort of thing is it relates to men, and that's what all comes down to. While on the topic of sort of uh, celebrities or well-known people in these areas, we haven't mentioned on-air, but we've sort of mentioned off-air, 12th man, Tommy Robinson. Mm. And are you aware, Scott? No, I couldn't tell He's a guy in the UK who uh, recently got arrested. Um, Ah, yes, because he's the... Fascist, isn't he? Well... That's a bit unkind. Okay, right. So... Lots of people talking about his arrest. So basically he was outside a court filming defendants who were Islamic defendants in, a, I think, a rape trial or... It was the the so-called grooming of um, young British girls by um, predominantly, probably exclusively Muslim, what what in Britain they call South Asian men. Yeah, which means Pakistani. So he was outside the court doing a Facebook Live sort of feed, filming Mm. the defendants, and he was found in contempt of court. And he was clearly in contempt of court because he'd been convicted earlier and given a suspended sentence and told, don't do this again. Right. And he went out and did exactly the same thing. Yeah. And the court said, well, we've told you. So we're now, we, your suspended sentence is now, you know, effective. Now, yeah. And here's another nine months on top or something like that. And he's in jail. And people have come out going, oh, poor Tommy Robinson. This is a, you know, this is a crime against uh, free, free speech. speech yeah. But that is not the case at all. He is interfering with the fair trial here and he's been given a fair warning mm-hmm. and he deserves everything that he's got in, in that case. So don't feel sorry for Tommy Robinson. Tommy Robinson, anybody, please. Look, I have some time for him, I have to say, because he, you know, he he puts himself on the line and his family for something he believes in, which is that British culture and society is being, you know, uh, inordinately influenced by religious people who are promoting not a nice religion. So I, I, I can support him. Um, in, in certain areas, but I agree with you. You agree he deserves to be in jail for that? Well, I, I agree that he he, he he acted stupidly right, by defying the courts yep. and okay. he, he got what he should have expected to get. Okay. Still on these sorts of characters, just to round it off, are you a fan of Dave Rubin at all? I am. I like Dave Rubin's show. Oh, and I know you don't, but, yep. yeah, I find him pretty good value. Did you know... Like this is trying to put the final. I, I do you know Dave Rubin at all? Scott? I do know Dave Rubin, yeah, right. and I was listening to his I, podcast, but then I. I find him so. incredibly lightweight, and he just 
keeps talking about libertarian stuff and says he wants to have an exchange of ideas, but he virtually never has a left-winger on his show anyway. And anyway, in an interview in March of this year, Rubin said that he would vote for Donald Trump in the 2020 US president election if a progressive like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren or Gavin Newsom is running against him. And he characterised Trump as a political moderate. He's, he's a nutcase. He's, he is a nutcase. Dave Rubin, he's intellectually shallow. He's, yeah. He's making please, a good living please, out please. of his intellectual shallowness, of course, yeah, but yeah. that doesn't count. Yeah, but, Look, but, I, but, I don't but here's necessarily... because he appeals to the right wing. And you see, the right wing will fund these things. So, uh, yeah, I don't know whether he's trying to appeal to the right wing or just trying to find the sensible middle ground, like like we are. Yeah, really, I, I, I'm saying, you know, let's pull the curtain aside, and he's just another right wing nutter yeah, dressed up. I, I don't yeah. necessarily. I mean, this is absolutely that. ridiculous that the right wing in America has got this thing about Bernie Sanders. You know, because he's a democratic socialist, whatever he wants to call himself. Mm. You know, it makes absolutely no sense because everything he's asking for is what we expect in Australia. Mm. You know, yeah. so if... Like if a decent healthcare system. Absolutely. Proper funding of education. Education, all those sorts of things. What we expect in Australia and the Yanks are fighting him on it. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit further down the track when we get to the demise of civilization in America. <laughs> Hey, still on legal religious issues, the masterpiece cake decision came out in America. Yeah, and that was ridiculous, wasn't it? So uh, if you haven't heard, this is the famous um, cake case where there was a guy who creates masterpiece cakes and a gay couple came in and said, we'd like to get a cake and without discussing anything further or any details at all, the guy said, you're clearly a gay couple, I'm not serving you. So that found its way all the way through to the high, uh, the Supreme Court. Of the but he, he said that he was willing to sell them a cake, just not a cake decorated with certain... Incorrect. ...gay nope. messages. Nope. Nope. Really? The facts he wouldn't the, sell them a cake at all? Would not sell them a, oh, okay. a wedding cake. So... Uh, he, they did not discuss any details of design or anything before he said, nope, I'm not serving you because I don't believe in gay weddings and I'm not going to help out in any way, shape or form. So that were the, those were the facts of the case. Okay. And uh, it found its way to the Supreme Court and this, was, of course, was the battle of, you know, your right not to be discriminated against versus... You're right to discriminate. Yes, exactly. As a religious person to, ex, you know, your religious freedom, yeah. which is code word for special religious privilege. Yeah. Yeah. And the Supreme Court squibbed because they didn't decide it on those issues. What they decided was that the commission who heard the case in the first place was biased and therefore gave this particular guy a free pass on this particular event and let him go, but without uh, determining the substantive issue. So they basically just ignored the crucial question and and picked out something that really wasn't the case because 
the commission in Colorado, their statement was really tame and they were just saying facts and it really wasn't a hostile, biased statement at all. So it was really the Supreme Court reaching for any excuse to sort of get out of a unpleasant decision that they didn't want to have to make. Mm. And people have said, well, what does that mean for Australia? And the answer is, this is why you don't put judges in charge of making important laws if you can help it. Because mm. this was a really important law and they just sidestepped it um, dramatically on trumped-up reasons. So these sorts of, you know, this is the sort of thing that will happen if a Bill of Rights makes its way into our system where we'll have judges who will need to make decisions, we'll just squib if they don't particularly like the decision they're going to have to make and it'll be chaos. So so I think that's what we can take out of it is, is don't trust judges. Um, you know, make laws as much as you can in the parliament and that way if you don't like them you can change them and just have the judges there to interpret and apply that law to cases as they come along. There we go. There hmm. end of the monologue. <laughs> Patrons, let's thank a few of our patrons. Dear listener, I just said to Scott, we are coming up to our third anniversary on the 4th of July. Mm. Not far off. So 4th of July, I think that has some other significance too, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. So <laughs> It's my better half's birthday. Okay, that yeah. must have been what I was thinking yeah, of. There you go, yeah. You can look around the podcasting world in Australia, dear listener, but a weekly podcast on anything... For three years, there wouldn't be many. There wouldn't be many, no. We've done well. Thank you to our patrons. I'm going to read them out from the beginning. The very first one ever with us, Sean. <laughs> You're still with us, Sean. <laughs> Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you so much, Sean. Yeah. Yes. Alex and Janelle, uh, Craig, John, Jason, Grant, Ueno, Ayame, who is in Japan and is a genuine listener. So thank you, Ayame. Brett, Anonymous, Allison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Craig, Jimmy, James, Jimmy, Spud, Kane, a new um, patron, Bronwyn. Good on you, Bronwyn, for coming on board. And the two Kens who don't use Patreon but who support us separately through cash donations and PayPal. Um, thanks, guys. Much appreciated. Dear listener, we've got an event coming up for patrons. Twenty. Uh, 24- Fourth of this month, Scott, let's just reach for our calendars because um, uh, I think it's the 24th, Sunday the 24th in Brisbane and I've been corresponding with our patrons who are able to make it and Paul's looking at me with a confused look. I hope you've got that date. I just didn't have the date. I I was expecting the event. I just didn't have a date in my mind. So we'll be in contact with our patrons and we're going to get together and have some drinks and the three of us will be there and uh, Landon Hardbottom and Raju Singh will be there. (laughs) Excellent. And um, I hadn't spoken to Hugh Harris or Right Wing Tony, but uh, they'll be invited and um, 
uh, Deep Throat will be there. He's looking forward to it. So, What about the uh, media? So Which uh, sections of the media will be covering it? Well, no, we won't tell them. So, well, <laughs> and, and if they become a pat- patron, we'll tell them. So, Fair enough. So there you go, dear listener. If you're thinking about it and uh, you're in the Brisbane, southeast Queensland area, um, there's a reason to come on board and... For the other patrons who aren't in this area, I'm sorry, but next time I'm in Sydney and Melbourne especially, I will let you know in advance and we'll try and do something um, at that time. So good on you to our uh, patrons. And the other thing I wanted to say on that sort of stuff was, how are you listening to this podcast, dear listener? Are you streaming it from the website or are you using an app? So... Many people just see the link on the Facebook page and then just click on it and play it. Be a good idea to have an app and then subscribe. That way you will never miss an episode. So I recommend that. Absolutely. Um, it just turns up on your phone automatically then. Yeah. yeah. We have a website, dear listener. Go on there and leave a comment. If you've listened to this episode and you want to make a comment, you can do so. Uh, every episode has its own little blog post, so leave a comment. We've got a Facebook page. You can like us on that and follow. Really, pretty much the only thing that happens is we tell you when an episode's come up and then the occasional survey or other thing, but we don't do a lot on the Facebook page. And iTunes reviews are very welcome. I haven't had one in a long time. I haven't had a testimonial in a long time. You can go on the website and leave an easy testimonial. Uh, You can leave a voicemail message via SpeakPipe. So that's what Landon Hardbottom and Raju Singh have done. So go on the website and you'll see a little link there. And if your computer has got a microphone, just start talking and recording. And look, it can just be a hi, guys, how's it going sort of thing. Or it can be a question or it can be abuse, just anything. (laughs) But you wouldn't believe how my heart just skips a beat when I get a little email message from SpeakPipe saying that there's a new message there. So, yeah. And, uh, yes, we mentioned Patreon and, yeah. Have, so, have you had a testimonial yet? Uh, so I've had separate testimonials, yes. So people can leave, if you don't want to leave one on iTunes, you can just, on the website, there's a link there for leaving a testimonial as well. And what sort of things do people say in testimonials? Oh, you can go and read it if you uh, like. Yeah, well, let me just... <laughs> let, what do people say in a testimonial? Uh, One of them was a little bit discouraging of me. Let's uh, <laughs> um, just... See, See what I've been doing is I've been taking the iTunes ones and and putting them in the testimonial one as well. So if you want to read them, dear listener, if you go to our... Clearly, 12th Man, you've never been to the web page because... The Facebook got, page I have been to. But the website has got a, a scrolling testimonials widget. So basically the testimonials just roll through. I'll have to have a look. Yeah. Absolutely, so. you do. And I only just... I hadn't been reading the website either until recently right. when I discovered all those comments people leave behind on each of the episodes. So now I keep an eye on those. So they are very good. Yeah. Let me just try and find this. Uh, well, this one was uh, from Tob- Tobias. Tobias said, brilliant, possibly my favourite Aussie podcast, nice one to do the gardening to. There you go. So stuff like that. One of the topics that has come up in last few days, it's a little bit obscure, but there's a group called the Ramsey Centre who are wanting to promote a degree in Western civilization at the ANU. 
And basically it was a degree that was going to explore Western civilization and say how great it is. That's fair enough. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to be more or less have a lot of control of who the lectures would be and what the content would be. And the ANU said, look, we're a university. We have to have full control over those sorts of matters. We'll take your money and we'll do a degree on that sort of topic, but you have to leave it to us to run it because that's what we do. We're a degree. We've got to maintain – we're a university. We've got to maintain that sort of autonomy. And um, the ANU just wouldn't – the the Ramsey Centre just wouldn't relinquish power, so the ANU said, well, we don't want your money. We're not having the degree. And the Murdoch press went to town has just it. been going to town on it. If you are unfortunate enough to subscribe to the Courier-Mail or the Australian, it's just been riddled with complaints about the ANU not running this course Scott, did you think the ANU had a case or did you think... Absolutely they did. Yeah, Yeah. Mm. I thought they did. And, you know, you summarised it beautifully. The ANU was just looking to maintain their autonomy and that sort of thing. And it's not hard to understand why that the uh, Ramsey Centre are a little bit control freak because the... uh, Chairman is John Howard. Mm. <laughs> One of the other uh, directors is Tony Abbott. Yes. And what really did surprise me was Kim Beasley's on the board too. Yeah. Which did surprise me. Um, I couldn't work out why the hell they were pushing it or anything like that. But then it got down here and it said the Ramseys, and this is some something Mr. Abbott wrote. The Ramsey said it was not merely about Western civilization, but in favor of it, he declared. You know, I, well, I mean, I think that it's to, it's clearly obvious to anyone with eyes that Western civilization has arrived at a superior place in world history. But to have a, university degree in it that these guys felt they needed to control, I thought that was a little bit over the top. Mm. Anyway, another example of the Murdoch press going to town and giving a very biased view of what's going on and if you just relied on them for your source of information... Oh, you'd you'd be screwed, wouldn't you? You would be, yeah. Do you hear me right, McTony? (laughs) 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 Right. Uh, Well... I'll mention this one as well. There's a a music festival and the police said prior to the music festival, we're going to have sniffer dogs there and if the dog sits beside you, we're going to search you for drugs and even if we don't find any drugs on you, we're not going to let you in. And that's what they did. That's outrageous, isn't it? I think that was an abuse of power. Where are the young people protesting in the streets? This is – where's the protest in the community about this? The police have just said, bugger the law, we're not going to let you in. They're going to create – they're going to make the law on the spot. Yep. Individual officers are going to create their own law on the spot. They have decided this person – will not be permitted to enter a public event. Now, yep. why, why are police commissioners allowing this? 
it's his idea. It's it's it's, Is it's this unbelievable. Mentality that it's they a police, make the law on the spot. It's just a police. It's an example of a police state, isn't it? It is. And that the fact that that has just gone without complaint mm. is the scary part. Mm. It's outrageous. That, that's it. Really scary. was wrong when I heard when I heard the um, reports on it on the news mm. radio the other day. I thought to myself, this can't be right. And then I looked into it and I thought, Jesus, this is right. It's New South wrong. Wales. Yeah. So yeah, if the dog sits beside you. And they search and there's no drugs, they're still not going to let you in to an event that you've paid potentially over you know, $130 a ticket. Outrageous. Too bad. Outrageous. I think the police force should be uh, litigated against for that. I think they should be. Yeah. If there's some way of doing it, there should be some civil liberties group some taking an action yeah, recourse of some for sort. people who are denied entry mm. to a public event that they've paid you know, I mean, yeah. even with the whole thing about drugs and all that sort of stuff, okay, look, you know, I disagree with the laws currently, but the laws stand the way they are. Mm. So I don't have a problem with the cops using the dogs and that sort of stuff to find someone that they're then going to search. If they find drugs on that person and that sort of thing, then the drugs should be confiscated and the guy should be charged for having them. However, if they then conduct the search and they find no drugs then that person should be let to go through unmolested. Mm. Because what they're doing is they're saying that if you have used drugs, you are not permitted entry, which I find absolutely ridiculous. Mm. Making up laws, they're supposed to enforce them, not make them up. Exactly. Mm. We're going to be getting onto money issues and as a lead up to that, um, one in six Australians is not able to raise $2,000 within a week in an emergency. So one in six can't raise 2000 And, um, you know, uh, you could easily foresee many sorts of emergencies that might require a quick 2000 So, And it's if, not it, a lot of money these days, mm, really, is it? Mm, $2,000. So that's one in six Australians can't raise $2,000. If you were in America... Uh, the statistic there is that 63% of Americans do not have enough savings to cover a $500 emergency. What was the percentage? 63%. 63%. That's disturbing, isn't it? Deeply disturbing. People are living on the edge. $500. 63% don't have enough savings in the US to cover a $500 emergency. That's deeply disturbing. Yeah. So you are living on the edge if you haven't got a spare five hundred dollars. Really are. Yep. That's a lot of people. That's a lot. Mm. Yeah. What is it? What's the population of the US? Two eighty or three hundred million? Three thirty something. Like so okay, yeah. three hundred thirty million. So sixty three percent of that is a hundred and eighty odd million people. Mm. Which leads into a discussion about the demise of the American Empire which we haven't had for a while. It's one of my favourite topics because we got to, the reason it's my favourite topic, dear listener, is we've got to make sure that we don't follow the same path. That's the whole key to this. So I've got a couple of articles here. Uh, the first one is from an Emir Haik, H-A-Q-U-E, and it's titled Why America is Collapsing at Light Speed. And... 
He says it's his personal opinion that America as an empire is collapsing incredibly quickly. And he says it's a subjective judgment, of course, but he then goes on to give some examples. He says, America's political institutions simply don't function anymore. Its democracy doesn't represent the 70% of people who want functioning health care, gun control, education, safety nets. But only, and this is the part that I really like, this, this article is worth it just for this line, mm. but, but only the 25 to 30% of immovable extremists who apparently want to live in The Handmaid's Tale meets 1984 by way of Mein Kampf. <laughs> That's good. That's the vision that they want these people. The Handmaid's Tale meets 1984 by way of Mein Kampf. Oh, that's good. So what he's saying here is democracy isn't working for the majority of people. Um, he uses this word polity, which means political system, I guess. So the American polity doesn't resemble the French or German one. In fact, it looks very much like the Pakistani polity, the Saudi or maybe the Soviet polity. It is completely and utterly dysfunctional to a degree that is unimaginable among its rich peers. And all that took perhaps a decade or two. That is true. This sort of decline of the American... It has been very quick. ...democracy yeah. into the state that they are in now with Donald Trump has mm. been brutally quick. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you can look at... If you look at the Americans and that sort of thing since they won the Cold War in 89, they have really... They have plummeted away at a breakneck speed. And, and, and do you see um, that the takeover of the Republican Party by the um, conservative Christian lobby in America, I think it's been a significant factor in that. Absolutely, it has been. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a cultural collapse, he says, from the culture of thought, reason and accomplishment to one of superstition, violence and extremism. Mm. Uh, he says a culture's role is to help people make sense of the world, but American culture appears only to drive people into a kind of madness, either a frenzy of violence, a paralytic resignation, or a blind rage of fear and ignorance. That is true. Mm. That's true. Yeah. And, and look, you know, I'm, I'm not in the habit of bashing America, but there are a lot of faults with its political system and it's, it's basically owned by big money now, the whole system. He says that in America, trust has imploded. People don't trust institutions, they don't trust society, they don't trust their neighbours. Social bonds have completely imploded. Norms and rules no longer appear to work at all in America. And he says... Now there is an open pedophile and rapist running for public office. Have you heard that? Yes. Nathan Larson, 37-year-old accountant from Charlottesville. He's running and he's, he's just a creep. Where does it say he's a rapist? Uh, well, he'd be a statutory rapist because he's had sex with minors. Oh, has he? Yeah. And he admits as much. Yes, he openly admits um, he ran online forums for pedophiles and misogynists. Like, he's just an awful piece of work. He's a vile... And he was elected? And, and he's, well, he's running. Oh, but the, oh, he's the running. point is he's running as a candidate. That somebody can run is a bad sign that your society has degenerated to that point. Although, look, you know, 
play devil's advocate here. Mm. I, I, you know, diversity is all to go these days. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, but, yeah, and look, I'm not saying I would support his candidacy. Yes. However, if 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 we're going to go down the track of defining what sort of people are worthy candidates, then we're perhaps going down a dangerous path as well. I'm happy to draw a line of pedophiles and say no. Absolutely. Not, not worthy I, candidates. I, I, I just personally think a pedophile wouldn't be elected, so I don't think we have too much to worry about. No, and I'm not saying ban them as a candidate, but you shouldn't have a society where that's even contemplated that somebody could be so openly brazen that you can it's create brazen, that's for sure. that you can create people like that in your society is is the problem. Oh. Uh, let me just finish this last quote from this article. Um, um, the hospital bill for having a child in the USA costs half of the median income. Not even in Pakistan, Iran or Afghanistan, does having a child cost so much? Not even in severely broken countries do relatively well-off people face so constantly the plight of living every day right on the razor's edge. And there they have at least informal safety nets, family support systems, communities to shield them, and public goods to protect them. But America has none of these because predatory capitalism has reduced them to prey. And we've just looked at that statistic where 63% are on the edge. These people are on the edge. It's gone too far. And he sort of, in the article, points out for a lot of these things, it wasn't the case 20, 30, 40 years ago, and now it is, and it's a fairly rapid decline. Mm. But look, has not the American public been been sort of fooled in you know by part partly by the ideology of america you know of people standing on their own two feet and making their own way in the world you know through the the power of their own effort and mm. you know intelligence whatever but as we know as soon as you know big companies in in america get into trouble they yeah, go the begging. One, the begging. They the go begging, begging to be from, bailed yeah, out. Exactly. But when they're doing well, you know, uh, they're they're against socialism. Mm. When things go bad, they're, they're instant socialists. Yeah, and uh, that is um, one of the real objections I had to the whole bailout system. I, at the time, I said it, and my better half disagreed with me, but. You know, his side won out. We will never know whether or not my side would have won. But I honestly believe that the time, and, you know, I use the British example where they bailed out, um, they bailed out the banks over there to an exorbitant amount of money where you actually would have been better off lobbing £25,000 on every doorstep in the UK Mm. rather than bailing the banks out. Now, what they should have done is they should have, when the banks were going belly up and that sort of stuff, they should have had them having a press conference in one room and then they could have gone next door to Gordon Brown where he said, we are nationalising this bank. We're going to buy it from the investors at pennies in the pound. And then they could have sold off, they could have sold off the shit debt and then they could have kept the right debt and that sort of stuff and then they could have moved forward and they could have had a bank that was worth mm. selling off. But instead, they bailed it out and the only bastard that didn't that didn't actually pay anything were the investors, mm. and they were the bastards that caused the problem. 
The same writer has another article titled The End of the American Experiment. It's and this up. was a really good article. Mm. It really is worth the, worth the read, listener. Yep. Uh, he says it's over, so what can we learn? And he said that working societies, if they are to prosper, need moral universals. And the sorts of things that are moral universals are um, health care, welfare, higher education... These are the things that the UK has and Germany has and countries like that. Um, moral universals not only share prosperity, but they have a civilising effect on people. Mm-hmm. Um, they let people grow, become sane, human, intelligent human beings. A person that is desperate for a meal will resort to whatever they must to feed their kids. That's sixty three percent we were talking about before. They're all desperate. That Absolutely, morals go out the window when you are living on the edge. It's really true. Mm. A society that cannot create sane, humane, civilized people can therefore no more reasonably stay a democracy. Uh, he said that Americans, whether it's today's extremists or yesterday's slave auctioneers and owners, believe that. Moral universals are just a cost, a tax. They have never seen and still don't see the benefits of the civilising process that democracy vitally depends on. This is, language warning, fucking Scott Morrison will talk about cuts as well all the time and yeah. tax and cut. and These are building blocks for civilization yeah, that you are yeah. knocking down. It's the same mentality that wants to run government like a business. Exactly. Yes. And government isn't a business. No, it's not a business. And, you know, this nonsense of saying that, oh, you can't run a household budget if if you're never going to get out of debt. I agree. You can't run a household budget like that. But a government is something very different to a household. A government is going to continue Mm. well beyond, well, the three of us are pushing up the daisies, the Australian government will still be there. Mm. And that is why... We should not be fearful of debt. Mm. We should be fearful of the amount the Queensland government has agreed to borrow, but <laughs> we should not be fearful of it if it is spent in the right manner. Mm. Yeah. So he finishes off here. Um, in America, democracy no longer exists in the sense of people cooperating by voting to give each other greater prosperity. They've merely learned to take prosperity away from one another, whether by denying one another, doctors, schools, trains and so on. Mm. That's true. Absolutely. And we are starting to do the same thing here when it comes to schools Mm. because there's a link here to an article from the John Menadou blog which says, real total government, this is both Commonwealth and state, funding per student in public schools across Australia for the period 2009 to 2016. Okay, so seven-year period to 2016, government schools, total government funding, Commonwealth and state governments. For those government schools, it's been cut by an average of $110 per student. At the same time, Catholic schools' funding has increased by 1171 and independent schools by 1,026. So our government schools have been cut by 170... What did I say here? Uh, mm. da, 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 da. 
110, and the non-government schools have increased by over a thousand per student in that time. This is the sort of mistakes that America was making, and we are making now. We're in trouble if we allow this to We're happen. in trouble and both of the major political blocs in our country are doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah I think we should have Just a discussion at some point about how we're going to vote because I am still torn I, about I don't which want to way vote to vote. for either of the No, neither do I. Parties. But you've got to, with a preferential system, your vote has to land on one of them at some stage. And that is the thing that I keeps me up at night because I don't think Shorten deserves to form government but I also think that the Liberal Party doesn't deserve to form government either. Mm. You know, mm. It's going to be a tough one. Absolutely. Mm. So um, moving on from that, Twelfth Man, one of my favourite books in a long time has been the book Sapiens mm. by Yuval Noah Harari. And the best part in this whole book was this bit where he was talking about the different types of humanism and... Oh, you've been through this before, yeah. 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 So there was basically, he described three types, which Hugh Harris immediately objected to and said, oh, I don't agree with just categorising into three years. Who he's, wants more? He's, he's simplifying yeah. something and he refused to be drawn into a category <laughs> so easily. But we've got liberal humanism which was the supreme commandment is to protect the inner core and freedom of each individual. So humanity is individualistic and resides within each individual. So that, I thought, Twelfth Man described you. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah, more or less. Good. Okay. But I, you know... I... And I'll quickly just say what the other two were. Okay. The, uh, the socialist humanist, the supreme commandment is to protect equality within the species. So humanity is collective and resides within the species. And then the third one was evolutionary humanism. So um, human, humanity is a mutable species. Humans might degenerate into subhumans or evolve into superhumans. The supreme commandment is to protect humankind from degenerating into subhumans and to encourage its evolution into superhumans. Wow, that's a... Now, Scott, which one of those do you fall into? Um, Superhuman. No, I, I, I have some sympathy with liberal humanism and the evolutionary humanism. The second one, the socialist, socialist use, one, yeah, which that, was equality. So the yeah, first, one, I do have some sympathy with that, but I'm probably okay. so the first I'm one, the, more into liberal and um, evolutionary humanism. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the first one, the individual is supreme. The second one, equality is supreme. The third one is sort of um, uh, developing into superhuman humanity. Isn't it? But isn't does, it? Obviously, there's no clear line. You know, I mean, obviously, someone who professes to to agree with the first one wouldn't necessarily be against equality. No, but if there's a conflict between the two, then the then if you it, it would be which camp you fall into in the event of a conflict between the two. See, so if there's a conflicting uh, policy, one that promotes equality versus one that promotes individual freedom, you, you would be going for the individual freedom one. Look, I probably would, yeah. but I'm, I'm certainly very much in favour of equality. I know, but in See, terms I, of competing interests. Yes, Scott? I personally 
favour equality of opportunity. I don't necessarily favour equality of outcome. Yeah. So it comes down to interpretation of yeah. what is equality and what is individual. So, so, so yeah. you're probably more talking about the first one. Perhaps. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm. Anyway, so that was from Sapiens, the first book by Yuval Noah Harari. And he's come out with a second book called Homo Deus, which um, man-god is basically the, um, the sort of translation of it. Oh, really? Uh, and it's a brief history of tomorrow is how it's described. So whereas Sapiens was sort of looking at our history and how we got to where we are, his second book is Where Are We Heading To? sort of thing. And he's making an interesting argument, Twelfth Man, that um, science is going to discredit people in your camp with their sort of thinking because... Uh, I'll just read a few quotes and then I'll explain why. So, and this is from an article which compares... Homo Deus with Steven Pinker's recent book. So saying that they've sort of got conflicting sort of approaches to this. So anyway, initially, Averz Harari, the differences between liberal humanism, socialist humanism and evolutionary humanism seemed rather frivolous. Set against the enormous gap separating all humanist sects from Christianity, Islam or Hinduism, the arguments between different versions of humanism were trifling. As long as we all agree that God is dead and that only the human experience gives meaning to the universe, does it really matter whether we think that all human experiences are equal or some are superior to others? And he said that of those three versions, the smart money was not on liberal humanism as winning out uh, in the uh, 20th century. He said it um, for most of the 20th century, the best and brightest believed that liberal democracy's days were numbered, yet against all odds it prevailed against its rivals. And they're saying that this liberal humanism has had a good run, but it's going to end. And he says it's going to be undermined in a decade or two by the same scientific progress that Pinker extols at length in Enlightenment now. Just as scientific study of the Bible inadvertently undermined faith in the Christian God, scientific study of the mind is inadvertently undermining faith in the liberal humanist God, the freely choosing individual. So a lot of the sort of theory that the freedom of the individual choice is paramount becomes undone if you accept the Cameron Riley argument that we actually don't have any freedom to choose mm. and that science is going to lay bare quite categorically that we don't have that freedom to choose. A myth of free so choice, if you are basing your ethical framework on freedom of individual choice, but science proves that you don't really have individual choice, then it tumbles down it like a pack of cards. Apart, yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. That is... Scott, you're looking depressed. Right. <laughs> I, I am a little bit depressed because I have always thought that the individual has the freedom to choose and that sort of thing. 
And I remember getting a little bit depressed when you were discussing this with Cameron Riley. Yeah. I thought to myself, geez, that doesn't fit well with me. And um, now you've come out with more books, that sort of thing. That Read Sam Harris's um, essay. On, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I've still got to read that, yeah. It's not very long. You'll get it through it in a weekend. Yeah. Anyway, in his second book, Homo Deus, Harari starts talking about um, y- y- free will and it's almost like he was quoting Cameron Riley. Like I actually <laughs> photographed it and sent the section to Cameron and said, have you read this? Because it's sounding a lot like what you were saying. And let me just repeat what the... Um, the idea was of this free will sort of argument. So this is from page 328. In the 18th century, Homo sapiens was like a mysterious black box whose inner workings were beyond our grasp. Hence, when scholars asked why a man drew a knife and stabbed another to death, an acceptable answer said, because he chose to. He used his free will to choose murder, which is why he is fully responsible for his crime. Over the last century, as scientists opened up the sapiens black box, they discovered there neither soul nor free will nor self but only genes, hormones, neurons that obey the same physical and chemical laws governing the rest of reality. Today, when scholars ask why a man drew a knife and stabbed someone to death, because uh, answering because he chose to doesn't cut the mustard. Instead, geneticists and brain scientists provide a much more detailed answer. He did it due to such and such electrochemical processes in the brain that were shaped by a particular genetic, genetic makeup, which in turn reflect ancient evolutionary pressures coupled with chance mutations. It's exactly out of the Cameron Riley playbook, that explanation. So, um, so yeah, no free will, then uh, an ethics system based on protecting the free will of individuals lacks legitimacy. So what do you do about the criminal justice system? Uh, well, you still have it because you don't want those people continuing to commit crime, but yeah. you take into account that um, really we're putting them there for our safety rather than retribution okay. as such would be the answer to that. But going on in this book, it then gives some really interesting examples of describing about um, free will and how they've done experiments to expose our lack of free will. So um, basically with the brain, the left hemisphere plays an important role in speech and logical reasoning whereas the right part of the brain is more dominant in processing spatial information. So we're well aware that left and right brain have these different sort of... um, Functions. Yeah, okay. So there are some rare people in the world whose left and right brains have been separated um, physically because of injury or through birth or whatever where there's no communication between left and right brain. So these people are really interesting to do studies on. So um, there's one where they did the study on a teenage boy who had this issue. The boy was asked what he would like to do when he grew up, and the boy answered to be a draftsman. 
Um, That's a pretty modest ambition. Yeah. So the answer was provided by his left brain, which plays a crucial part in logical reasoning as well as in speech. Yet the boy had another active speech centre in his right hemisphere, which could not control vocal language but could spell words using Scrabble tiles. The researchers were keen to know what the right hemisphere would say. So they spread Scrabble tiles on a table and wrote on a piece of paper, what would you like to do when you grow up? He placed the paper at the, uh, they placed the paper at the edge of the boy's left visual field. Um, data from the left visual field is processed in the right hemisphere. Since the right hemisphere could not use vocal language, the boy said nothing, but his left hand began moving rapidly across the table, collecting tiles from here and there until it spelt out automobile race. <laughs> Completely different response. Absolutely. From different sides of the brain. There was a guy who was a, um, a patient, WJ, a Second World War veteran, um, his hands were each controlled by a different hemisphere. Okay. Uh, since the two hemispheres were not in touch with one another, it sometimes happened that his right hand would reach out to open a door and his left hand would intervene and try to slam the door shut. Hmm. Really? Um, okay. And here's the last example of this. Uh, in another experiment, they... So these are all with people whose brains are separated physically. Um... His team flashed a picture of a chicken claw to the left half brain, the side responsible for speech, and simultaneously flashed a picture of a snowy landscape to the right brain. When asked what he saw, patient PS answered, a chicken claw. Uh, the professor then presented PS with a series of picture cards and asked him to point to the one that best matched what he had seen. The patient's right hand, controlled by his left brain, pointed to a picture of a chicken. But simultaneously, his left hand shot out and pointed at a snow shovel. The professor then asked PS the obvious question, why did you point both to the chicken and to the shovel? And the patient replied, oh, the chicken glaw goes with the chicken and you need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed. So what had happened is that the left brain, which controls speech, had no data about the snow scene and therefore did not really know why the left hand pointed at the shovel, so it just invented something credible. Hmm. And that's what we do all the time in different ways. Indeed we do. So, um, so your primacy of individual choice and freedom as a humanist, it's an could be up for review. Mm. You could end up being part of the evolutionary humanist that I'm in, yeah. I think. That's interesting. Well, I read Sam Harris's um, piece on free will about roughly five years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was profoundly interesting mm. and it certainly has implications for just about everything in our society as it's organized but mm. yeah um I, I i still don't accept that we have that that we can't be responsible 
you know, at all for our actions. I think we still have to decide at some point that even if we're all basically automatons acting on some sort of impulse firing inside our brains, we still have to be legally and accountable. I well, tend to well, agree we are with legally you. accountable, but as again, I would say that's because we need to and because people will make decisions based <clears throat> on whether there's a punishment or not. Hmm. So Although that, not that always, will, apparently. Correct. So some people will. Yeah. So you need a punishment process there. Apparently because, the death penalty, so, they say, has very little impact right. on the incidence of homicide. Right. But, you know, people don't speed because they don't want to pay fines. That's, that's for sure. True. Yeah. So people will respond to penalties. Mm. certain people will, it will alter their behaviour. So you need it for that and you need to lock people away because they're Very a menace to society. But that sort of retribution, you did that on purpose and you're just... Um, you chose bad, to do it. Bad boy, and yes. we're going to punish you yeah. for your choice. Yeah, that's right. it's really yeah. well, not you incredible. Know, I mean, we already do allow people some sort of opt-out if, if they're not... Um, uh, judged to be sane. There was a case of that guy, it was in the news today, that guy that drove his car down a shopping street in Melbourne and yeah, killed Burke six street, people. Yeah. yeah, he yeah. said that he was here on a mission from God. Yeah, okay. well, mm. well, he's been certified. Probably it looks unlikely that he's going to go to trial because he's not... Right. But you see, somebody like that, uh, with a legal defence of insanity, mm. still ends up being locked away somewhere. Yes, so for... It, for In a public jail safety of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's probably where he should have been already. Unfortunately, it was discovered after he'd killed six people and mm. injured so many others. So anyway, the argument by this Harari is that science has basically um, ruined religion mm. and it's and probably going to do the same to the individual free will yeah. liberalism argument. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. To ponder, isn't it? Mm. It is. Mm. It really is. It, you know, tears at the heart of the whole thing, doesn't it? It's hard to get your mind around it. Mm. Mm. So does it undermine liberal democracy is the big question in my mind. Well, you see, also that chapter continues with some of Kahneman's um, experiments where people really don't know what's best for them mm. because people's minds average things rather than accumulate experiences. So remember the people who uh, were exposed to very cold water for a minute and then their hands were removed. And then with their other hand, they were exposed to the same very cold water for a minute, but then a further minute where the water was just slightly warmer for another minute. So the second... So with the second hand, you clearly had exactly the same pain as the first one, plus a little bit less. In people's minds, they they average the two experiences and go, well, that wasn't so bad mm. compared to the first. So people actually choose when asked which experiment would you undergo again if you had mm. to, they choose the longer one, not recognising that, in fact, it categorically had more pain involved because mm. people's memories are not good. So... Mm. So, yes, there's all these tricks of the mind where people are actually quite often fooled as to what's 
clearly yeah. in their own best interests. There's also the the element of, as you said before, um, somebody might decide you don't know what's good for you. It's a bit yes. like religious yes. organisations, yes. isn't it, telling us that we don't know yeah. what sinners we are and we yeah. don't know that the only way to, re- to, to, to be redeemed or saved from ourselves is through allegiance to this sky fairy, you know? Yes. Uh, and it could come to pass, and it already has come to pass, obviously, in many, many states where the government decides the common people don't know what's good for them yeah, and they need to be told and cajoled into living as the government decides they should be living. Mm. That's the problem with democracy. It's terrible, but it's the best thing we've got so far. Mm. Yeah. It's mm. the least worst option, as it's mm. sometimes said. Yeah, I guess mm. the key is to, well, this is your favourite thing, is to educate people as to absolutely uh, not only policies and what's going on, but also to their inbuilt biases and mm. misconceptions mm. about their own feelings that yeah. people need to also become aware of mm. and go, well, hang on a minute, am I committing an error here, um, a, a mental error that's... Uh, it's part of the Kahneman theories mm. or not. It's hard to do all the time. Yeah. Mm. Right, dear listener. Well, that was a bumper episode. <laughs> <laughs> Next week. But just be a as much fun one. as every other episode. Indeed, yeah. So we'll see what the, uh, what the world brings us next time. We'll be back for... Episode 152 next time. We're zooming in on our third year anniversary. If you're not a patron, now's the chance, particularly if you're in the Brisbane area. What more could you want than to meet uh, Landon Hardbottom and Raji Singh? <laughs> so uh, I can it'll be, a, it'll be a special event and... Look, just sign up and donate a dollar and then cancel it after the event. That's what you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you really want to. Yeah. All right, dear listener, until then, uh, goodbye for now. Bye, thank you for listening. See ya. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, 
contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.